Well, today is our final uh, sermon in the series through the book of Habakkuk, and we are going to be in chapter 3 of Habakkuk today as we close out this series. And all throughout, if you've been here, you know the story of Habakkuk by now, but if not, I'll briefly catch you up. Habakkuk is a prophet, and he begins asking the Lord, where are you, God, in the midst of the evil and injustice among your people here in Judah? God, why won't you do something about the wickedness that's spreading among your people? And then God answers Habakkuk and says, I'm doing something that you would not even believe if I told you. And as God proceeds to, to reveal to Habakkuk what he's doing, he shows Habakkuk that he's going to use the nation of Babylon to bring justice and judgment to Judah, which really throws Habakkuk for a loop because he goes, wait a minute, I wanted you to do something about what was going on in Judah, and you're going to use an even more wicked and cruel nation like Babylon to come in and, and do this work that you're, you're doing? And then God begins to remind Habakkuk of his character and remind Habakkuk that Babylon will receive justice as well, but that God is working throughout the course of history to accomplish his purposes and his plans and his sovereign will. And today, we come to verses that really the book of Habakkuk is probably most known for. At the end of chapter 3, we'll get there this morning, you see these verses that Habakkuk begins to praise. Habakkuk actually, in the midst of the chaos, in the midst of the pain and the confusion, actually gives praise and honor to the Lord. When we begin, he's questioning the Lord about what, what's he doing? Why does he idly look on as evil goes on, which we know God's not doing? And now his situation is, from Habakkuk's perspective, even worse, because now he realizes not only is Judah a mess, but Babylon's going to come in and tear the nation apart because of God's judgment. And so really, things are worse than when the book began, and now Habakkuk begins to praise. And so that's what we want to learn from today. It would almost be like going to the doctor with a minor headache and being diagnosed with a brain tumor is what Habakkuk ended up with. And saying, our situation is bad, and then finding out it was far worse than he even realized. So how does he get to a point of praising? All along the way, what we've seen Habakkuk do is ground himself in the character of God. Even in the questions, even in the doubts, he continued to go back to God's goodness and his holiness and his justice, reminding himself just who God is. And so he ends with this song, really. It says a prayer of Habakkuk in verse 1 of chapter 3, but it's really ultimately a song. We even see the musical note Selah, which we find in the Psalms so often. This is the only other place in the Bible we find that musical note. So this is a song of praise to God. Even at the end, we're reminded that this is to go to the choir master with stringed instruments. And so much like last week, this is a longer passage of scripture. And so rather than break it up and read it in chunks, I want to read it in its entirety first because I, don't, I want to make sure that you don't get just fragmented pieces of this. I want us to see the fullness of the context of what's happening here in Habakkuk chapter 3. So I'll read the passage as a whole, and then we'll pull out what I think uh, God intends for us to learn from this today. So Habakkuk chapter 3, starting in verse 1, a prayer of Habakkuk the prophet, according to, and I practiced this word a million times, and I forgot the way I practiced it. I'm not going to lie to you this morning. The Shigionoth, that's how I'm going to say it. I'm going to stick with it. O Lord, I have heard the report of you, and your work, O Lord, do I fear. In the midst of the years, revive it. In the midst of the years, make it known. In wrath, remember mercy. God came from Timon, and the Holy One from Mount Paran. 
His splendor covered the heavens, and the earth was full of his praise. His brightness was like the light. Rays flashed from his hand, and there he veiled his power. Before him went pestilence, and plague followed at his heels. He stood and measured the earth. He looked and shook the nations. The eternal mountains were scattered. The everlasting hills sank low. His were the everlasting ways. I saw the tents of Kishon in affliction. The curtains of the land of Midian did tremble. Was your wrath against the rivers, O Lord? Was your anger against the rivers or your indignation against the sea when you rode your horses on your chariot of salvation? You stripped the sheath from your bow, calling for many arrows. You split the earth with rivers. The mountains saw you and writhed. The raging water swept on. The deep gave forth its voice. It lifted its hands on high. The sun and moon stood still in their place at the light of your arrows as they sped, at the flash of your glittering spear. You marched through the earth in fury. You threshed the nations in anger. You went out for the salvation of your people, for the salvation of your anointed. You crushed the head of the house of the wicked, laying him bare from thigh to neck. You pierced with his own arrows the heads of his warriors who came like a whirlwind to scatter me rejoicing as if to devour the poor in secret. You trampled the sea with your horses, the surging of mighty waters. I hear and my body trembles. My lips quiver at the sound. Rottenness enters into my bones. My legs tremble beneath me. Yet I will quietly wait for the day of trouble to come upon the people who invade us. And here are those well-known verses that I told you about at the beginning. Though the fig tree should not blossom, nor fruit be on the vines, the produce of the olive fail, and the fields yield no food. The flock be cut off from the fold, and there be no herd in the stalls, yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will take joy in the God of my salvation. God, the Lord, Yahweh, is my strength. He makes my feet like the deer's. He makes me tread on high places. Would you pray with me as we approach this passage this morning? God, this morning, the things that we do not know, I pray that you would teach us. The things that we have heard before, would you more fully confirm and reveal to our hearts and our minds? The things that we are confused about, would you bring, would you bring faith into our hearts to believe you at your word? And the places where we are weak, would you be our strength this morning? We ask this all in Jesus' name, amen. So my points today, the three points that I have are gonna be really the, the, the things that we see in Habakkuk. Where does he take himself? Now that he's heard God's plan revealed, now that he kind of begins to understand a little bit more what's going on, in the midst of still immense pain, what does he do? How does he respond to all of this? But I wanna say this, especially if this is, your first sermon in this series that you've been here for, maybe you've missed parts of this, I wanna make a very important point this morning that we cannot get to the place that Habakkuk gets to that we see today unless we walk through the truth that he walked through. And so a lot of times, like I said, those last verses in chapter three are quoted, even though all this is happening, I'm still gonna rejoice in the Lord. We cannot get to that place unless we walk through the truths that Habakkuk has walked through about the character of God and his sovereignty and what he's doing in our world that we don't fully understand and trusting in him. We can't get to rejoicing until we've walked through what it means to be the righteous that live by faith. 
And so if this is your first sermon in the series, please understand the importance of the foundation that has been laid for this. To try to get to a place of rejoicing in the midst of pain without walking through the truth that we've seen would kind of be like being dropped in the middle of the NBA finals and being asked to lead that team to victory, right? You don't have the foundation of skills or knowledge to be able to accomplish that. And that's what we need. We need the foundation of truth that God has given to us through his word and who, is, who he is to be able to get to this place of praise. But as we walk through the foundations with Habakkuk, now we see his response. And the first thing we see here in chapter three is Habakkuk's fear, his fear of the Lord, his reverence toward the Lord, his awe of who God is, his trembling of the sovereignty of God, understanding that yes, the Lord is good and merciful to his people, but he's also a God of wrath who will not allow the guilty to go unpunished. And Habakkuk fears the Lord. He has this healthy, reverent awe of him. We see that almost immediately in verse two. He says, O Lord, I've heard the report of you, and your work, O Lord, do I fear. In the midst of the years, revive it, and in the midst of the years, make it known. In wrath, remember mercy. Once again, Habakkuk is taking what he knows about the Lord and he's grounding himself there. What, what we see, all this imagery that we see in verses 3 through 15 really is what theologians call a theophany. And it's really this picture of God's glory and his holiness revealed. Maybe one of the most well-known theophanies in scripture is when Moses encountered God on Sinai and while Habakkuk is not, the best we can tell, literally encountering God's glory as Moses did, he's writing down this revealed picture of God's glory. And it's all for the purpose of causing us to fear the Lord, to have a reverence for him and an awe for him. Vern Poitras said, A theophany is an appearance of God, an intense manifestation of the presence of God that is accompanied by an ex extraordinary visual display. And it's meant to drive us to awe and fear and worship of the Lord. It uses language and imagery that we, we, we understand, and it applies it to the Lord whom we cannot fully understand and grasp. That's why you see language like mountains and thunder and the foundations of the earth being shaken. It's meant to take images that we do understand and that fill us with awe to help us to begin to apply them to the Lord who we cannot fully understand to lead us to worship. And what Habakkuk's doing is he's really looking out, looking back throughout the course of the history of Israel. And so in this, I'm going to show you a few examples. We see, we see things that remind us of creation and the flood and Israel's exodus from Egypt. We see images that remind us of Sinai even in this passage. Let me give you two specific instances. In verse 3, he says, God came from Timon and the Holy One from Mount Paran. Those two places are very near Mount Sinai, and they are places that Israel went up from, from Sinai to go to the promised land. He's reminding us that God was with his people, and he's reminding us that God is the one who was revealed on Sinai, who gave the law to his people, who's the holy one that shook the mountain and reminded us who he is. Verse 5, before him went pestilence and plague followed at his heels. He can't help but be reminded of the plagues of Egypt when God brought these things on Egypt to cause Pharaoh to let his people go. And again, Habakkuk's reminding us that God does not let the wicked go unpunished and that he does redeem his people. But he's looking back and he's saying in verse two, he's saying, Lord, I've heard all of these reports of you. I know what you've done throughout history. Do it again. Remind us who you are. 
Remind us of your power and your ability to redeem your people. Let me just run through these really quickly. Verse, I won't have these on the screen, but I just, just if you're taking notes, verse 6 appears to reference the flood. Verse 7, God's victory in battle for Israel. Verse 8 is God's victory over Pharaoh's army at the Red Sea. Verse 11 reminds us of God's intervention in the battle that Joshua fought when the sun stood still for God's people to win the battle. And on and on, Habakkuk goes on to remind us why he feared the Lord over his enemies. And the truth is, as you move through this passage and you see all this awesome imagery of God's power and his holiness, we still have to agree with Job when he said in Job 26, behold, these are but the outskirt of his ways. And how small a whisper do we hear of him. But the thunder of his power, who can understand? We have these images and we begin to try to grasp just how awesome and mighty he is, but these are just the outskirt of his ways. Who can understand the Lord? It's kind of like when you're a child, you, you fear the thunder, the sound of thunder, right? But you don't fully understand what's going on. And as you grow older, you begin to understand a little bit of what's happening. And you understand the reality of lightning. And your fear almost even grows and becomes more informed. As we begin to see the Lord, we begin to fear him. And as we grow in understanding and knowledge of him, it's that fear that drives us to worship him and to want to know him more and understand him better. Why do this? Why, why does any of this matter in relation to the conversation of why is God allowing evil in the world? Why is there pain and suffering in my life and the world around me? Why does this apply to that? Well, it's because Proverbs remind, reminds us that in the fear of the Lord, one has strong confidence, and his children will have a refuge. It's in the fear of the Lord. It's in understanding who he is and how awesome are his works that we have strong confidence. And I believe that one of the main reasons that so many Christians are living in a fear of the times is because they've lost their fear of the Lord. I believe that. I believe that when we begin to find ourselves in fear of the times around us and the things that are going on, an unhealthy fear of those things, it's because we're losing our fear of the Lord. This fear that reminds us just how mighty and powerful he is, just how sovereign he is, that not a molecule in existence is outside of his control. And when we begin to fear what's happening around us, it's because we are losing a fear of the Lord. And, and I think one of, it's not the only reason, but one of the reasons we can begin to lose our fear of the Lord is because we, we have a lopsided view of his character. Because we, we focus so much, rightfully so, please understand, rightfully so, we focus on his love and his goodness and his kindness. Let us continue to do that, but not at the expense of his holiness and his power and his wrath and his justice. And in the same way, there are, there are people who focus so heavily on his holiness and wrath and justice and who forget his love, and they live in despair too. Either way will be led to despair. I think of, you know, my daughter, if, if I let her, she would have a nonstop diet of uh, ice cream and donuts and chocolate milk. Like, that would be it for her, right? But if that's all that she eats while it's good and she enjoys it, eventually she's going to be malnourished. Eventually, she's going to need something else. We need to have a full picture of who God is. We need to remind ourselves what it means to fear the Lord and what it means to delight in his love. Furthermore, those 
treats, those desserts like donuts and ice cream are best enjoyed after a good solid meal. And I think that is also true when we think about the love and goodness of the Lord. Those are best understood and appreciated in light of his holiness and justice. When we realize just what we deserve for our sin, and then we see his love, it causes us to worship him even more. H.D.M. Spence said, the wrath of God is as much a reality as the love of God is. And that's why Habakkuk writes one of my favorite phrases in the entire Bible in verse two when he says, in wrath, remember mercy. In wrath, you are the God who brings justice. You are the God who rights wrongs. In your wrath, remember your people who have placed their faith in you because it's the righteous who will live by their faith. Remember your mercy toward us, O Lord. I see you and I fear you and I understand just how mighty you are in your wrath. Remember your mercy toward your people, which leads us really right into our next point. We see Habakkuk's fear, number one, but number two, we see Habakkuk's hope. What's his hope in all this? Because if there's all this destruction around him and Babylon is right around the corner to completely annihilate Judah, almost, then what's his hope His hope is found in verse 13, probably better than any other place in this passage. He says, you, God, went out for the salvation of your people. In all of this imagery that we see of God bringing justice to the nations, his purpose is to go out to bring salvation for his people, for the salvation of your anointed. You crushed the head of the house of the wicked, laying him bare from thigh to neck. Let us understand that the Bible makes clear in passages like Ezekiel 32 that God does not take pleasure in the destruction of the wicked, but he still does not clear the guilty. And he does take pleasure in the salvation of his people. Really, what came to mind as I was reading this passage, if you've ever seen the movie Taken, I was reminded of a father who would stop at nothing to go out and to deliver his child, his children, who whatever obstacle is in his way, God is going to make sure that justice is served because there's no obstacle that can get in the way of the Lord. Who could stop the Lord Almighty from delivering his people, from bringing salvation to those on whom he has set his love? And God ultimately would save and deliver his people from Babylon. But when we read verse 13, that's not Habakkuk's ultimate hope. Understand for a minute with me that Habakkuk's ultimate hope was not that God would one day bring the people of Israel out of Babylon. That was a part of his hope, but that was only temporary. His ultimate hope was in the salvation that God would bring for his people for all eternity. And so verse 13 is not only, here, here's the thing, we see, we see Christ in this verse because not only is verse 13 reminding us of the salvation of God's people, but if you just look at the language of it for a minute, He says, God, you went out for the salvation of your anointed. And yes, his anointed people is Israel, but there was the one who is the true Israel who was yet to come, Jesus. He is the anointed one. He would come to bring salvation to his people. And even that language where it says, you crushed the head of the wicked. I can't help but be reminded of God's promise way back in Genesis When God said to Satan, the serpent in the garden, in Genesis 3.15, I'll put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring. He, the offspring of the woman, Jesus, shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. He will crush the head 
of the serpent. And so we see Habakkuk remembering not only that one day will God deliver his people from Babylon and, and the sufferings of this life will have some relief, but ultimately that God went out for the salvation of his people. He will preserve the line of the Redeemer who is to come. Jesus is coming. And for Habakkuk, he only saw this in part. We, we're reminded uh, specifically in 1 Peter that for the prophets of old, they only saw parts of this salvation that would come. And now we get to look back and see fully. Let me read 1 Peter chapter 1. It says, It was revealed to them, the prophets, they were serving not themselves, but you, us, in the things that have now been announced to you through those who preach the good news to you by the Spirit sent from heaven, things into which angels long to look. When you read verses like Habakkuk 3.13 and you see God went out for the salvation of his people, Habakkuk saw that in part, but we look back and we see Jesus and we see that in its fullness, that God has accomplished salvation for his people. Therefore, Peter says, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Habakkuk's hope is our hope, that God goes out for the salvation of his people. And we look back and we see the cross, and we see the fulfillment of these promises of old that God's redeemer would come and accomplish salvation for his people. That is our hope. Habakkuk's ultimate hope was not necessarily deliverance from Babylon, although that was promised and God did fulfill that. His ultimate hope was salvation from his sin and eternity with his Savior. And that leads him to our third and final point today. We see Habakkuk's hope that leads him to, number three, Habakkuk's praise. This is his response. In the midst, in the midst of unimaginable suffering that was already here and still yet to come, because it would be years after Habakkuk wrote this account that Babylon would actually come in to, to do these things. And when you think about somebody like Habakkuk knowing what's about to come, knowing what God has promised, and just having to wait for that, I can't imagine the fear and the anxiety that must have crept in often for him. And yet, he praises. I'm going to read these verses again because I think they're so good in light of what's about to happen. He says, though the fig tree should not blossom, nor fruit be on the vines, the produce of the olive fail, and the fields yield no food. The flock be cut off from the fold, and there be no herd in the stalls. Yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will take joy in the God of my salvation. God, the Lord, is my strength. He makes my feet like the deer's. He makes me tread on high places. This is not some guy ignoring the circumstances around him and saying, you know what, I'm gonna rejoice in the Lord because if you go back to verse 16, you see him saying things like, my body trembles, my lips quiver at the sound, rottenness enters into my bones, my legs are trembling. Yet, I will rejoice. Yet, I will take joy in the God of my salvation. Verse 17, no, no, figs or olives or cattle. It's kind of hard for us to understand just how intense that was. This was a full-blown economic shutdown. This was no opportunity to get food. This was no opportunity to make a living for yourself. This meant complete destruction. 
far worse than any circumstances we're even finding ourselves in today, as difficult as they may be. And in the midst of that, Habakkuk says, yet I will rejoice. Those two simple words show us the heart of Habakkuk's praise, the word though and the word yet. Though everything seems to be falling apart. Though there's nothing on the vine, though there's no cattle in the stalls, yet I will rejoice. We think of Paul's words in Philippians 4, rejoice in the Lord always. But Paul, what about when my life falls apart? But Paul, what about when I don't understand what God's doing? Paul, what about when my life leads me to question the goodness of God? Again, I will say rejoice. There's no condition put on this. Matter of fact, James specifically says to count it joy when you experience trials of various kinds. Don't count the trials themselves as joy, but find your joy grounded in the character of your God who is good, who loves you. But for us, we say God is good when good things happen to us, and that's true. But can we say that same thing when nothing good is happening? So ask yourself this question. Is God good because he gives me good things and he blesses my life? Or is God good, period, no matter the circumstances? Is God good because my life is going the way I want it to? Is God still good? when nothing turns out the way you want it to, is God good, period? Because if he is, circumstances do not change that. If he is good and he is God, there is nothing that this life brings that diminishes his goodness. He's good, period. There's a man by the name of Alan Gardner, who was a British uh, Navy officer and he, uh, he was also a missionary to Pentagonia, and he, uh, he went out with this group of people, and they were trying to minister to those there, the natives there, and they ended up struggling and meeting some hard times. And through the course of time, they eventually ended up with no resources and no way to get out, and one by one, they began to die with no way home, no way to get the things that they needed. And... Alan Gardner's journal was found later. This was in 1851, by the way. And on August 27th, 1851, there was a specific journal entry that, that caught a lot of people's attention because this was about the time when he was almost the last one left. Just about all of his companions had died at this point, and he knew there was basically no hope for him to be able to make it through this. And this is what he wrote in the backdrop of those circumstances. I pray that in whatsoever state by his wise and gracious providence I may be placed, basically in whatever situation I find myself in by the providence of the Lord, that I may therewith be content and patiently await the development of his righteous will concerning me, knowing that he doeth all things well. Can you say that in the midst of wherever you find yourself. He does all things well. That I may remember his goodness, that I may be sustained by his grace and his mercy, though, and put whatever you want after that, though 
the diagnosis came, though my marriage is struggling, though I'm not sure that I'll be able to provide for my family throughout the next coming weeks, though our world literally seems like it's falling apart at its seams and I don't know what to do with this information, yet I will rejoice. As we begin to close, you might say, well, Kenny, that's Habakkuk. He's a prophet, right? I mean, he's, he's this spiritual giant of the faith. That's not me. I can't do that. And if you were to have a conversation with Habakkuk and you were to look at him and say, Habakkuk, how are you able to say that? Like, what made you such a strong believer in your God? What gave you such great faith to be able to do that? And I think Habakkuk would probably stop you mid-sentence and say, no, 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 no. Verse 19, God, the Lord, is my strength. That's not my strength. It's not my ability to praise in the midst of the storm because I want to do anything but. My legs are trembling. My lips are quivering. Everything's falling apart. I don't know what to do. And I'm praising because the Lord's my strength. I can't think of a better way to end this sermon, this series, than to sing the song, It Is Well, together. And that's what we're gonna do in just a moment. But just before we do that, I have one more story to share with you. And it's the story of the song, It Is Well. And you may have heard this before. Give me a minute of your time if you have. If not, I want you to listen into this. The man who wrote the well-known hymn, It Is Well, is Horatio Spafford. And he wrote it during one of the greatest tragedies of his life, probably the greatest tragedy of his life. It, he and his wife had already lost their son. A year later, his business was burned to the ground in the great Chicago fire. And just a short time after that, he and his family wanted to just get away and take a break. And so they wanted to go to England, I believe it was. And he sent his wife and four daughters on the ship ahead of him and he would meet them there. And on their way, the ship was struck by another vessel and sunk killing all four of his daughters. And his wife survived, and she was able to get a telegram to him because in this day, they weren't able to communicate as quickly as we could. And all, all it said was, saved, alone, what should I do? And so he gets on a boat, and he heads to his wife and on the way there, the captain realized that they were in the exact same spot that the ship had gone down where his daughters had perished. And the captain tells him that that's where they are. And he goes into his cabin and he pens these words in that moment. When peace like a river attendeth my way, when sorrows like sea billows roll, whatever my lot, Thou hast taught me to say, it is well with my soul. And like Habakkuk, you might say, Mr. Spafford, how could you say that? And I think verse two gives us the answer. And I want to put it on the screen because I want you to see it and I want you to hear it because this was Horatio Spafford's hope. This is our hope. This was Habakkuk's hope. This is the only hope that we have. Though Satan should buffet, Though trials should come, let this blessed assurance control that Christ hath regarded my helpless estate and has shed his own blood 
for my soul. That's our hope. That's what we have to hold on to when trials should come, when Satan should buffet, when it all falls apart, when it seems like God's not listening, when it seems like he's idle. Habakkuk says, yet I will rejoice because God is my strength. He goes out for the salvation of his people. He will not fail. And so let us this morning draw near to the throne of grace, beholding our God in fear and reverence and awe, setting our hope fully in the salvation that he has purchased, though trials should come, because the righteous live by their faith, because Yahweh is our strength, because the destruction of the wicked is as sure as the salvation of his people and because above all, he is worthy of our praise. And so I invite you to stand as we're gonna sing this song. And, and let, me, let me invite you to, to worship however you feel led, you feel appropriate this morning. Maybe it's to sing loudly with us. Maybe it's to reflect on these words. And let me, let me challenge you. Even if you don't believe you can sing these words today, because of the circumstances of your life. You don't think you could sing it as well. Remember the words of Habakkuk. God, the Lord, is your strength. You can't sing this on your own strength. It's only by grace and his mercy showered upon us that we could say, though trials should come, it is well. Let me invite you to sing with us this morning.